According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. We're going to cover some short items. At least the transition is a short item, leaving for Galilee. These first four verses here, which will then launch us into the next item, which will not be so short, the uh, Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, verses 5 through 42. And that will effectively form the, uh, the bulk of our remaining material here in what is titled the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Once we get beyond the woman at the well here in chapter 4 and we move on into the uh, episodes which follow, we will be uh, fully into the Galilean ministry. And so when we transition from this early section to that next section, then um, it'll, it'll really be a, a significant transition in this study. We'll move on to the Galilean ministry. It will enable us to print Notes to uh, give out handouts, collections of notes for everything that we have covered up to this point. And so uh, I know folks have been waiting for some notes to be printed. And uh, so we'll be glad to move on to this next section to where we can print off the notes from the previous section, the one that we have completed. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your truth, thankful for the opportunity we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We we do ask for your hand of blessing upon us, that, Father, you would give us the humility to accept the Word of God for what it is, and we would be humble before the authority of your Word, recognizing that when your Word uh, makes things clear, that we are accountable to apply it, and we are accountable if we don't. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege we have, and we just ask for your guidance and direction, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have wrapped up the material from chapter 3, which included the ministry that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the contemporaneous ministry that he and his disciples had with John the Baptist and his disciples, and then we started to notice the conflict. And I want to just spotlight that again before we proceed on into chapter 4. You will notice the uh, the ministry is contemporary in chapter three and verse twenty two um, verse I'm sorry verse twenty three John also was baptizing in Aanon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized so Jesus has a ministry with his disciples John has a ministry with his disciples they're going on in proximity to one another and then this Jew comes along in verse 25. And this is not just simply a random Jew off the street. where We recognize the vocabulary for the Judaizer, the vocabulary for the Judean. In other words, here is a member of the Jewish religious system uh, led by the Pharisees, led by the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, and the religious structure in and around Jerusalem. And he comes uh, to discuss, he comes to debate in verse 25. But the discussion and the debate quickly brings about a dissension. And the more we examine the Pharisees and the more that we examine their 
manipulations, uh, we start to recognize that this is not accidental, that the discussion has been uh, steered, the conversation has been directed in such that it will cause or try to cause that division among between Jesus and John the Baptist. And this, uh, in fact, works so far as John's disciples are concerned. They do get um, disgruntled. They do get dissatisfied by the fact that their numbers are dwindling and Jesus' numbers are increasing. So it's kind of an interesting little bit of, of deduction when you look at these uh, verses, and it seems innocent enough. It seems like in verse 25, well, we just want to have a discussion. Let's talk about purification. But in reality, what it's doing is it's driving that wedge in between Jesus and John the Baptist, and it's causing hard feelings on the part of John's disciples. And that's reflected immediately uh, when you go from verse 25 to verse 26, and they go immediately to John to say, we've got a problem here. And uh, as we studied it, John didn't view it as a problem. John was, in fact, quite happy with uh, Christ increasing and him decreasing. He viewed that as the next uh, natural step in the progression of God's plan. So keep that in mind because what happens here in these early chapter or in the early part here of chapter four is that John is going to be arrested and Christ is going to flee. He's going to relocate out of Judea and relocate to uh, Galilee. And this is what we read here in these early verses. So let's just read verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses, verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, in parentheses, and really a significant issue, and we'll deal with that momentarily, but John felt it was critical to refer to that or to make that point clear some 80 years after, or at least uh, 60 years after the events. Verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Uh, Again, of course, he'd been to Galilee once already when he turned the water to wine. He had an initial journey into Galilee. He had an initial relocation of his family to Capernaum. Uh, But then he came down to Judea for the Passover, and he's been ministering in Judea ever since. This is now the second relocation into Galilee and will become a more permanent one uh, because the bulk of the next uh, three years is actually going to be here in Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. You know, it's interesting when you think about what you have to do. And sometimes people tell you what you have to do and you get a little upset with them and say, well, I don't have to do that. Who says I have to do that? What if I want to do something else? All right. Well, that's just our obnoxious, ornery humanity at work. Okay. Was that an amen? I I thought I heard something. Anyway, when Jesus Christ has to do something, it's quite remarkable because who tells him what to do? God the Father tells him what to do. The leading of the Holy Spirit tells him what to do. When he's under a compulsion, it's a recognition of the will of God and going forth in obedience to the will of God. And we'll see that principle as well. He had to pass through Samaria. Didn't, you know, have to in earthly terms, but he had to in spiritual terms because there's a woman there who needs the gospel. She's going to get saved. It's going to spark a massive revival. In fact, the entire city is going to come out and there'll be a tremendous revival, which we will observe by the time we get to the end of the chapter. Now, let's get some points on this. I'm just going to give you two overall points on these verses with uh, some sub points in between. First of all, Jesus became aware of the Pharisees Hostile monitoring, and that's what I'm calling it. They're watching what's going on, and it's not friendly. 
And so we're, we're referring to this as hostile monitoring. Jesus became aware of the Pharisees' hostile monitoring of his disciples' training ministry. Remember, this was a training ministry for his disciples. He was spending time with his disciples. He was supervising while they were baptizing. And it is a training ministry for these disciples, particularly the ones that transitioned from John's leadership to his leadership. And Jesus became aware that the Pharisees were watching what was going on. We should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, the Scripture tells us. We should be aware, even though we live in a land of tremendous freedom, even though we have, ostensibly, we have freedom of religion, the freedom to assemble, um, as those freedoms start to become eroded, as government starts to get more and more intrusive, we need to have our eyes open to that reality. See, it wasn't too long ago in recent weeks, I remember reading a, st- a story about how the FBI had contacted a pastor and he didn't know what it was about. He was curious about it. And uh, they asked if they could have an appointment. He gave him an appointment that day and they came into, he thought maybe, uh, you know, somebody in his church was in trouble or somebody was being investigated. They wanted to inter- interview him as a witness or for information or background or something. He had no idea. Well, it turns out they had questions about a sermon that he'd been preaching. They were asking him about a message that he had preached and a phrase that he had used with respect to um, current events, with respect to the homosexual activists and the culture of of uh, mandated homosexual acceptance and so forth. And he referred to it as a struggle. Well, you and I might understand what that struggle is about. We might understand that we are in angelic conflict, that we must keep our armor on, that we cannot compromise the truth for the lie and so forth. But the FBI was concerned that because he used the word struggle or conflict, I forget the term that he used, that maybe he was advocating, uh, you know, some kind of militance, some kind of violence or activism against homosexuals. See, And so the FBI is investigating. Well, that can be. A little bit disturbing. The idea that the FBI is listening to messages and they're going to come and follow up on it, investigate it, and find out, you know, who, what you're teaching and why you're teaching it and that sort of thing. See, not that we have anything to hide. Mind you, every message we teach is on the website. FBI doesn't have to come in here and interview us. They can stay at FBI headquarters, download whatever they want to download, and listen to, listen to the whole thing. I hope they do. <laughs> It'd be good to have somebody investigate you and they actually get divine viewpoint give them some content maybe they'll get saved maybe they'll learn something but when we examine this from john 4 and verse 1 when the lord knew that the pharisees had heard that jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than john see that takes immediately back to chapter 3 and verse 26 this these lackeys these minions this jew that had come supposedly to debate or discuss purification and all they wanted to do was discuss doctrine see but what they were really doing was they were investigating uh john's ministry jesus ministry driving wedges between them manipulating very much in line with the activity of the schemer he left judea and went away again into galilee he recognized that the prudent course of action here is to relocate that yes the time is going to come for these very enemies these very servants of the devil to arrest him to crucify him to put him on the cross that has to happen but not yet (laughs) all right not yet we're still three years away from that see or just under three years away from that in terms of this um 
Passover that he attends in uh, chapter 2, being three years short of the Passover where he himself will be crucified. Now, sub-point A, he supervised his disciples' baptism ministry. He supervised his disciples' baptism ministry. Now, John, the Apostle John felt that it was significant to include it as a parenthesis in verse 2 here. That Jesus himself was not baptizing. That was not his function. In fact, he couldn't. He couldn't engage in a water baptism ministry because as John described it, John the Baptist was baptizing with water, but the one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus Christ has future work to do from this standpoint, the standpoint of this passage, in sending the Holy Spirit in the baptism fire and the, the different things that we are going to look forward to prophetically. He is not here to baptize with water, not like John was, not like his disciples are. Okay, And the Apostle John felt that was significant enough to make sure people understood that by inserting this parenthesis here into verse 2. And so we make note of it and we recognize the function of this early ministry. The disciples, just like they were doing when, when John was baptizing, uh, and we don't have any clue in, in, in John the Baptist's ministry that he trained others to do any baptizing. It seems like the Baptist did it all himself. He baptized everybody that was coming to him because he was the forerunner. He was the prophet. He was announcing the Christ. And then when the Christ appeared, he was equipped to say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It does not appear that Andrew or any of the other disciples of John did any baptizing themselves until they started following Christ. And so that uh, that also becomes an interesting observation to make. Secondly, point B this ministry was producing many repentant believers prepared for the kingdom. Let's bear in mind what this baptism was supposed to be doing. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were coming to John. They were being baptized as they were confessing their sins. They were asking, what do we need to do? And he'd say, quit taking bribes, quit stealing money, quit abusing your authority. Live a life consistent with godliness. And this was a preparation ministry to take repentant believers, believers that maybe had gone worldly, believers that maybe had started to compromise with the world system, believers that were just flat out carnal. And it was a wake up call to say the kingdom is at hand. We need to be spiritually prepared for Messiah to inaugurate the kingdom. Hopefully that's review. We touched upon much of that when we were dealing with John the Baptist in previous messages. But that's what this baptism ministry is about. The early gospel ministry of Jesus Christ is going to be the gospel of the kingdom because the king is still being offered. He's not yet been rejected. He's not yet uh, reached that turning point where he stops proclaiming the kingdom and he starts preparing his disciples for the crucifixion. Here in the early part of the life of Christ, he's still announcing this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is in hand. Now, there's a principle here to this. With the uh, growth, with the blessings and all these crowds coming out here is going to come conflict. Along with the wide open door for ministry came the adversaries. Like we saw in chapter 3, like we see here in chapter 4, like we see over in Matthew when John the Baptist gets arrested. All right. And for this principle, if you'll just join me for the moment at the last chapter of first Corinthians, we have a text here that's very important. It's a text that I used in our deacons meeting last Monday night. 
we do a devotional type Bible study uh, at the beginning of every deacon's meeting. We open in prayer. We turn to a passage. We have a uh, a reading of the passage and, a, and an application. And then I turn it over to the uh, deacons and for the, the business side of things. But the, the text that I opened the meeting with this time around, this month, was 1 Corinthians 16. And the challenge, when Paul is trying to work out his travel arrangements... I love this because you would think you'd say, well, come on, Paul, get organized. What are you going to do? You know, you've been an apostle 20 years. You've written all these books of the Bible. You founded all these churches. You should at least know what you're doing by now. And yet Paul leaves himself totally flexible, totally open to the will of God, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. He can make some rough plans, but he's open to having those plans changed. It drove the Corinthians nuts. They hated him for it. Uh, They thought, well, you're wishy-washy. You said you were going to be here and you didn't show up. You're a liar. Okay. Paul said, no, I'm sensitive to the will of God. And if he has me go somewhere else, then you guys just better get used to it. So he says uh, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 16, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. In other words, he knew that when he got to them, it was going to be a long-term deal. It wasn't just going to be for a short stay. For I hope to remain you, for, remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. See, now Paul understood divine guidance. He understood the geographic will of God. And what happens when you have to pick up and move? What happens when you need to relocate? See, and people get all edgy and say, well, I don't want to move. See, well... Hopefully these are uh, lessons we're going to learn ahead of time if, in fact, the Lord decides to relocate us out of this building, for example. Then he says in verse 8, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. See, the biggest issue you've got to recognize for divine guidance as far as God's geographical will is concerned is where is the open door opportunity? Where are you supposed to be? And instead of trying to beat your own doors open and go do what you think needs to be done, recognize the door that he has opened wide and go through it. And when he opens it, you'll notice it's not just open to smidgen or just kind of, you know, open to crack and you've got to kind of slip your way, squeeze your way through there. No, it's a wide open door. When he opens these doors and makes it obvious, this is what he wants you to do. See? And so uh, we've been dwelling on these passages and praying about them and considering this uh, this church planting opportunity, for example, in Horseshoe Bay and the wide open door opportunity there with believers on positive volition who want to get a taste for what face-to-face doctrinal teaching is all about. Most of them never seen anything like that before. And so we view something like that. It's a wide open door opportunity. See, what are you going to do with a wide open door? You're going to go through the door as uh, Revelation makes clear. But, finish the verse. Okay, I deliberately stopped in verse 9, partway through. I didn't read the rest of it, but you better, because it says, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You better believe, if Jesus Christ has opened a wide door for opportunity, that the adversary doesn't like it very much. The adversary is not going to just stand there and say, oh, wow, look at that. There's a whole lot of fruit going to be born there for Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of glory there for the Father. No, the adversary is not stupid. He will recognize that open door opportunity and he will start to put obstacles there. He will start to work in conflict. 
He'll do what he can to throw stumbling blocks in the way. He'll do what he can to discourage a believer so he doesn't go through the open door opportunity. See, there's nothing more dangerous for the health of a local church than when they're right on the verge of stepping through an open door into greater responsibilities and greater uh, fruit. Because at the same time they're on the verge of stepping through an open door for greater fruit, they're also on the verge of stepping off a cliff. See, and so we recognize when we're praying about church growth, we're praying about expansion, we're praying about a lot of other things. At the same time, we better be praying for our marriages. We better be praying for humility to not get caught up in the glory, got caught up in all the money and people and excitement and oh, wow, we're growing and we lose sight of what what got us to that point. See, because the angelic conflict will intensify. Back to John 4, and we see this now. Along with the wide open door for ministry came adversaries. As more and more were being baptized, as John was baptizing, Jesus was baptizing, uh, or his disciples were anyway. And, you know, the Pharisees weren't going to stand for that. Not for a minute. So here come the adversaries. Now, secondly, Jesus chose to relocate to Galilee. Jesus chose to relocate to Galilee. This decision was made in accordance with the divine guidance he constantly sought and received from God the Father. We have to keep that in mind. Because the answer to conflict is not always run away and go somewhere else. Alright? If you're going to use this verse and say, oh, well, relocate, okay. That's the pattern. That's God's will. If Conflict arises, go somewhere else. Careful now. (laughs) You can't use this text to support that. The answer is not run away from your problems. See, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, if, if all I was doing was looking at this verse, it might seem, okay, well, there's a pattern there. Problem arises, all right, go somewhere else. If this was the only passage I could learn from and I couldn't find any other passages to apply, then maybe I could draw that conclusion. But no, there are many other passages to draw from, many other scriptures to apply, many other concepts, see, when it comes to angelic conflict, when it comes to decision-making in the will of God, when it comes to determining God's geographic will, when it comes to just problem-solving devices, see, the God gives the endurance so we can endure the test as uh, the, the faithfulness of his provision is there. He will not test us beyond that which we're able to bear, but with the uh, testing will provide the ekbasis, the conclusion. I hate the, the way of escape because that seems like, again, I'm going to run away from my problems. Get me out of it. See. Now, the ekbasis, the exit, the conclusion He has, he knows what put you into that circumstance and he knows what's going to get you out of that circumstance and it's not running away, but it's that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. Anyway, this decision was made in accordance with the divine guidance he constantly sought and received from God the Father. I already keyed in on the phrase in verse 4, he had to, he had to pass through Samaria. He was under an obligation. He was bound by this necessity. 
Over in chapter 5, we get a passage in verse 30 that gives us the motivation for everything that he does. The first part of verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. He constantly sought. He constantly received divine guidance from God the Father. This was the blessing for an Old Testament prophet. If he was truly using such guidance, if he was truly seeking the Father's will. Remember, Old Testament prophets had the privilege of what the Old Testament calls, quote-unquote, inquiring of the Lord. See, and the Old Testament prophet could, and the high priest using Urim and Thummim, and in some cases a king, if he was under blessing rather than cursing, could inquire of the Lord. Say, Lord, uh, Pharisees are investigating. They're hostile. You want me to stay or do you want me to go? See, and he would receive divine guidance. We saw it in the life of David when uh, uh, he was in Keilah and the inhabitants of Keilah there and Saul was going to come and surround the city and he inquired of the Lord. He said, Lord, are these guys going to give me up? <laughs> he said, yep, they're going to give you up. Should I stay? Should I go? No, you got to get out of there. See, divine guidance for the prophet now. It's not omniscience at work, but this is a prophet who's seeking God's will. But the key is you've got to have humility to accept God's will. Because Balaam inquired of the Lord, but he didn't like the answer. <laughs> he wanted to curse Israel so he could cash in on payday there. See, you have, to be able to, you have to be willing to accept the will of God, which Jesus Christ always was. So this decision was made in accordance with the divine guidance he constantly sought and received from God the Father. And I'll probably remind you of John 5.30 many times in the process of this Life of Christ series. I can do nothing on my own initiative. And it's not denying omnipotence. He can do whatever he wants to do. But remember, he's laid aside his privileges. He's not exercising deity. He's not exercising omnipotence or sovereignty or any of that. He's volitionally laid that all down so he can be obedient to the Father. So he chose to relocate to Galilee. Let's keep these things in mind because it may be the will of God to relocate, to change geographical locations. It may be the will of God to, um, to distance yourself from a conflict or it may be the will of God to stand your ground and dig, dig in your heels and, and uh, stick to your guns. See, there's a time for everything under the sun. And the, the key is just knowing which is which. <laughs> See, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. My, my father was very fond of that phrase. He'd, he'd say something like, and he would paraphrase, put it in his own terms, but he'd say something uh, like, there's a time to run and there's a time to stand firm and this isn't one of them. All right. Well, the real secret is, well, which one isn't it? Which one is it? All right. In this case, the will of God is to depart. And he will set up shop in Galilee. He will minister in Galilee for the better part of these next three years. Uh, he, will, he will only return to the Judean region for the annual pilgrimages. He will come for the Passovers. Uh, two of them, one of them anyway. He will skip uh, Jerusalem Passover a year before his crucifixion. And, uh, but then he will return to Judea uh, shortly before the cross. Who's going to relocate? Subpoint A. He chose the direct, rapid, and unusual route through Samaria. He chose the direct, rapid, and unusual route through Samaria. Ah. I was going to get some maps prepared for this morning, and I failed to do that. 
slipped my mind. Hmm. I enjoyed Warren's comments on tape Sunday night. <laughs> where he opened the uh, class with his complaint regarding short-term memory. Fortunately, I had the advantage of listening to it on MP3 Monday morning. And I heard him. And I was able to pause the MP3 and say, no, he's not going to. And then I pressed play. And sure enough, I enjoyed it very much. Anyway. If you miss Sunday night or Sunday afternoon, you can download the MP3 from the website. But like he was mentioning, you kind of lose these things a little bit. Um, I was going to prepare some maps. Now you're stuck with my artwork. Land of Canaan. Simple as that, all right? Because here's your Mediterranean. Here's your land of Israel. The River Jordan flows roughly north-south. You've got your Sea of Galilee. You've got your Dead Sea down here, Okay. Um, here's Sinai, here's Egypt. All right. Now, the, um, are you impressed? <laughs> All right. Basically, you want to divide this region here into three parts as such. Judea, and you probably have these maps in the back of your Bible, maybe. Uh, Samaria. We're going to give you some his history on the Samaritans this morning and next week. And Galilee. All on the western side of the Jordan River. All right. On the eastern side of the Jordan River over here, we've got in the north this region of Decapolis. And further south, we've got this region of Perea. Now, um, this region was very Jewish. This region was very Jewish. Uh, this region also had considerable Greeks. This was almost all Greeks over here. All right. This was a blend. Now, we had Samaritans over here. We also had uh, Romans over here. All right. No Jews. They hated the Samaritans. The Jews would go north into Galilee or south into, into Judea. Some of them would cross over into Priya, but they would avoid Samaria. They despised the Samaritans. We'll give you some of that. The Samaritans racially were half Jewish anyway. They were descendants of, of Jewish forefathers and Gentile Assyrian forefathers, and we'll, we'll give you the background on that. But as it stands in the day of Christ, no pure Jew would live there. They hated the Samaritans, and then the Samaritans hated them back. Nothing like a religious difference to drive some hatred. Okay, Now, you would think, if you're trying to go from here to here, the shortest distance between two points, straight line, yeah. Except that takes them through... Samaria. So, they would actually prefer to do that. They would much rather go around than through. All right? It meant long, it was a longer trip. It Generally, longer trips would be more expensive because you've got to buy more food to travel the number of days necessary to get that far. Except when you realize that Anybody going northbound, the Samaritans would sell them food for triple price, quadruple price, 
five times. Oh, you're a Jew? You know, this loaf of bread would have been uh, a, a denarius to any other Samaritan, but it's ten denarius for you. See? And if you're headed southbound, forget it. Nothing's for sale. You're going to the temple? You're going to Jerusalem? Forget it. Nothing's for sale whatsoever. Get out of our town. So, here they're headed northbound, and the disciples are going to be able to go into the city to buy food. They're going to pay extortionist rates, but they will go into the city. They will buy food uh, because they are headed away from the temple. Uh, later on, when they're trying to go to the temple, they're not even led into the city. And uh, so James and John want to call in the, the artillery and blast the city to smithereens. So, this is the circumstance we're dealing with. And they would typically go this way, except this time. I think it's testimony to how fast they had to get out of town because the Pharisees are going to be taking John into custody and may likely have also had a warrant for Jesus. It shows the, the, the rapidity in which they had to get out of town, the, the speed they had to just immediately flee. Also, they didn't have enough provisions with them. They have to go into the Samaritan city to buy food as Christ is waiting by the well and he sends his disciples in there to buy food. Um, there's a lot of indicators that as they're headed due north, um, speed is necessary and even secrecy is necessary because if there's bandits on the road looking to waylay these guys, um, they would be expecting Jesus and his disciples to take this route. And so by plunging into Samaritan territory, they're effect, uh, effectively throwing any enemies off their trail, so to speak. All right, so there's your geography. We'll do some more with that as well. He chose the direct, rapid, and unusual route through Samaria. Point B. This escape, and I'm calling it an escape, this escape from Judea coincided with John the Baptist's arrest. Now, the Gospel of John does not tie the arrest here into chapter 4, but it has already made mention of it in chapter 3, when the contemporaneous ministry was started. This escape from Judea coincided with John the Baptist's arrest, Matthew 4.12. Um, we've previously seen in John 3 and verse 24, when this contemporaneous ministry was described, it said, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. See, the John was written decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. He's assuming that his audience knows the basic story of Jesus Christ. He didn't know the synoptic story. In other words... Born of a virgin, baptized by John, tempted in the wilderness, gathers disciples, Galilean ministry, you know, walks on water, feeds 5,000. The basic outline of Jesus' ministry, John's readers know that story. But he is giving them now details that weren't recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, details that he was there to observe. And so occasionally we get these comments like we have in chapter 3 and verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we take that, we relate it over here to John 4 now, where uh, he leaves Judea and goes away into Galilee uh, under the hostile monitoring of the Pharisees from verse 1. And then when we synchronize John with the Synoptic Gospels, we recognize in Matthew 4.12 that this is indeed the, uh, the event that coincides with John's arrest. 
And whether John was arrested first and then Christ took off before he could be nabbed, or whether Christ took off and then the Pharisees nabbed John before he could escape, um, I think you could maybe infer either way on that. Um, although Matthew 4.12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. All right, so it kind of seems like the Baptist was nabbed and so the Lord took off. Okay, um, but, you know, he could have heard physically, he could have heard prophetically, he could have been tipped off and, and fled first. It's, uh, but I think the indications are that he heard in the natural way that he, he heard, that with his ears, you know, that John was arrested and so they fled. Didn't even stop to buy food. Didn't wait for the next day. Didn't head east. Headed north. Plunged into Samaritan territory and got out of Dodge, so to speak. All right. So, the direct, rapid, and unusual route. Secondly, it coincided with the arrest of John the Baptist. Again, does this mean we're going to run away from our problems at all times? No. Point C. When the hour is at hand, Jesus will not hinder his arrest. But until that time, he will not permit himself to be arrested. And this is going to be the pattern, not only here, but it's going to be the pattern we're going to observe again and again and again and again. So let's get the principle now and then keep it in mind as each incident um, transpires in the course of this study. When the hour is at hand, Jesus will not hinder his arrest. John 18, 11 and 12. Join me there. We'll take a look at it. Just because I like reading it. <laughs> John 18. There are certain passages I just enjoy. I don't think I would ever turn down an opportunity to turn there. And uh, the uh, swashbuckling Peter here just as a passage I don't often turn down looking at. All right. When we jump to John 18, we've just fast forwarded three years. This is the Passover of his arrest, of his crucifixion. And um, Judas in verse 3, or verse 2, who was betraying him knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. He knows Christ's uh, patterns, he knows his practices. And, G and Judas then, having received the cohort and the, of officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, that's not omniscience again, that's prophetic uh, guidance, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, Egoimi, I am. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, Egoimi, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. You've got to know, he's been praying in the garden. His soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. He, this is the word of God speaking. The one who spoke and the universe sprang into being. Just stop and consider the power behind Ego Amy, behind I Am. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. So he's going to provide for them to flee and escape even while he gets arrested. 
Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. The, the Synoptic Gospels gave us a little bit of this information. John, though, tells us by name who this slave is. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So when the time comes, he's not going to resist. In fact, he's going volitionally because he knows he has to lay down his life. But until that time, he will not permit himself to be arrested. And there's a couple of other incidents. We'll see a number of circumstances where this will be uh, declared. John 7.30, John 8.20. Uh, there'll be a, a number of incidences like that. This is simply two out of several. John 7.30, they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to, but it was not permitted. Chapter 8 and verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But when the hour comes, he submits to it. So just keep that principle in mind as uh, we proceed chapter by chapter through the material. All right, now this brings us to verses 5 and following. The Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Not enough that they actually escape out of town, but they get to where they need to be. As we pointed out in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to, in keeping with the Father's will, in keeping with the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction, because there was work there to be done. It's not just, if you think about it, it's not just where you are, but what got you there, the process to bring you there, all of the experiences that the Father uses to bring you where you are now, and the work He expects you to do along the way. Start thinking in, in those terms when we start to pray about divine guidance. So He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. See, this region has so much... Uh, the heritage of Israel, of the Jewish people, of their land. I mean, this is a part of their heritage, a part of their history and their, their foundation. Jacob is the one renamed Israel. This is his land. He bought this. And you stop and consider, God promised this to Abraham, and yet Abraham had to pay cash for the field at Machpelah. Uh, he promised this, confirmed it to Isaac, and Isaac had to pay cash for Bir Lahai Roy. He promised this to, uh, to Jacob, and Jacob pays cash for this region around Sikar. See, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises of the land grant. But this is a this region of Samaria is a part of their heritage, part of their land, and they can't even live there because these Samaritans are living there. Part of what drives that antagonism and that uh, that hostility between Samaritans and Jews. Well, this is the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman. All right? So, all of this might appear to be coincidence, but it was necessity. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to be at this well, at this time, on this day, talking to this woman. Are all these things coincidence? None of them are coincidence. Every detail is worked out according to the grace eternal plan of God for the ages. 
I hope we can start to recognize this. And I hope believers start to think in terms of their daily life, where they are, what they're doing, who they encounter. See, you ever stop to consider the... um, you're at a restaurant, which, which waiter you end up with and why you ended up with him instead of somebody else? Or uh, you're at the grocery lane, a grocery store and what lane you're going through, what checkout clerk you're going through, why you're encountering that person instead of the other person? Say, well, I just, uh, I just picked the shortest line because I hate standing in line. Oh, okay. You don't think God the Father directed which line was going to be the shortest so you could pick that line and encounter that person you need to encounter? Oh, do you really look at things that way? This passage seems to indicate that nothing is coincidence, that God puts us in contact with the people he wants us to be in contact with. And when we all get to heaven and find out some of the things looking back, some of them may not even be human beings. Some of them may be angelic beings undercover on assignment to test your hospitality, to test your grace, to test to see if you're going to apply the word of God or if you're going to Um, not apply the word of God in a particular circumstance. All right, here's this woman. We don't even know her name. So we're going to be stuck calling her woman. (laughs) All right, the Samaritan woman at the well. You think we can maybe come up with a nickname for her and you know who she is, but she's the Samaritan woman at the well. All right. And uh, this is going to take us down from verse 5 down through... Um, when it's kind of, well, down through 42, down through 42. And then in 43, he leaves there and heads up into finally arrives in, in Galilee where he sets up shop. All right. First of all, what begins as an apparent chance encounter quickly becomes a very fruitful ministry. What begins as an apparent chance encounter quickly becomes a very fruitful ministry. Now, it seems like coincidence, but nothing is coincidence. God the Father has planned all things from the Alpha to the Omega. Everything has been designed for the glory of Jesus Christ. Keep these things in mind the next time a supposed coincidence seems to pop up. See, again, all the details of this. The fact that he had to leave quickly. The fact that he had to go through Samaria. The fact that they needed food. The fact that he was tired. Physically tired. In fact, we'll look, we'll do a word study on the copiao. Exhausted. See, the devil strikes at opportune times. And so in all likelihood, this point where he had to flee was after a long day of ministry. There's nothing like a long day of ministry to leave you tired and make you not want to pick up and leave town. All right? And that's the moment that they had to flee. So he's physically exhausted. He's going to send the disciples in to buy the food. He's going to hang out there by himself. Here comes this woman. It seems a coincidence. But it's not. She is exactly the right person at the right time to not only is she on positive volition, not only is she going to get saved here, but she um, she uh, is situated in such a way where she has influence in the lives of others. 
All right. Now, that situation is not the most ideal. All right. In fact, it's rather carnal the way that she knows so many people in that town. All right. The uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that she has influence or at least um, the ability to contact people who know who she is and um, enough uh, credibility or enough influence there that they will listen to what she has to say and they will go out and investigate for themselves and then they're going to get saved. See, and you look at some at a story like this and you wonder how in the world does the Lord use a circumstance like this woman and, and her lifestyle and all the things here in this in this town and, and you just come to the decision or recognition that grace is, a, is an amazing thing. <laughs> it is an absolutely amazing thing. All right, notice, Dan, let me give you a preview here how this is going to turn out. Verses 40 through 43. Um, or verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. See, the moment she goes in there and lets it be known that all of her secrets are exposed, uh, well, you know, these guys are sharing those secrets, all right? It's not just her secrets that have been blown. You know, it's not just her um, past that's been revealed and exposed, but all of these guys, they're being exposed as well. And so that gets their attention. And so they go out. And when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. So we have many in verse 39, and then many more in verse 41. And they were, no, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. It's staggering how these Samaritans have a greater comprehension of what the Messiah is. The Jews have a limited, that is the religious Jews, have a limited understanding of the Messiah because they're thinking in political terms, in worldly terms. They're expecting the Messiah to be a king, to let them rule over these nasty Samaritans and the Romans and the Greeks and all the other Gentiles and to set up a kingdom of glory. They're thinking politically. These uh, Samaritans recognize him as the savior of the world. What an understanding. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. He can't stay very long, but he stays long enough to give them the teaching and the instruction, the foundation to, uh, to build from there. And I don't find it coincidental that it's going to be this very region then that in subsequent years, is going to be so fertile for Philip the Evangelist to come along and have ministry among Samaritans, which we're dealing with uh, on Sunday nights in Mr. Dow's class on, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. So, coincidence or ministry? See, if we have our eyes open, we can start to examine the coincidences for what they are. And to recognize when he opens the door. And we want to be very careful about this, that we're not trying to manipulate things ourselves. We're not going to use human effort to engineer something and then step back and say, oh, look what God did. No. Just stop that arrogance right there. You manipulated that. That was your craftiness. That was your um, human ability. That was your self-promotion or what have you. But when it's circumstances that you had nothing to do with, choices you didn't make, events that you couldn't control or predict, uh, things that are happening 
that, that seemingly just fell into place, then you can see God's will in those areas and say, wait a minute, is this divine guidance? Is this an indicator of God's will? Is he organizing my circumstances so that I have an open door opportunity? I hope we can start to gather those distinctions because if it's a situation we manipulated for ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to identify it for what it is. That's just human effort manipulation. See. All right. Secondly, where is this Sychar place or Sychar place? It is identified with Shechem in the Old Testament. There are some scholars who dispute that, but I think the majority accept the identification of Sychar with Shechem. It's linguistically valid, and it's also um, historically valid because of the reference here to Jacob's well and with reference to the geography that he purchased. Sychar or Sychar is identified with Shechem in the Old Testament. So when you come across Shechem in the Old Testament, we're dealing with the same location. Now, it's been destroyed a few times, rebuilt a few times. That was pretty normal. Uh, When an enemy would come in and destroy a place, oftentimes it would get rebuilt. Sometimes it would keep the same name. Sometimes it would take a different name or something kind of similar. But generally speaking, you would rebuild a city where a previous city had been. Because all cities are going to need certain things. They're going to need a source of water. So if there's a well nearby, if there's a a plentiful source of water, springs and that, that's a good place for a city. And if it's been destroyed by war, well, you know, let's build another one there because it's got a water source. All right. Or it's situated on a hill. It's situated on a on a defensible uh, defensible position on a with a rocky outcropping or maybe there's a tower. Maybe there's another aspect of the terrain that helps it to make it defendable where you can build up walls and defenses. Okay. You know, if the place is vulnerable, then cities don't last there very long. They get wiped out and people learn and say, that's kind of a stupid spot for a city. It gets wiped out too easy. All right. So all of this uh, goes into play here. Shechem had been destroyed and rebuilt at least a couple different times in the process of Old Testament history and inter-Testament history. In fact, the Jews themselves themselves destroyed this place once. John Hyrcanus, uh, one of the Maccabean, uh, one of the, the, the Maccabean kings, destroyed this city because he hated the Samaritans so much. He went up to Mount Gerizim and he destroyed their temple, even while he was building, you know, glorifying his own temple there in Jerusalem. We'll deal with some of that history as well. All right, scripture on this, just by way of reminder, Genesis 33. Genesis 33. Jacob's on his way back into town. Remember, Jacob had to flee when Esau wanted to kill him. So he uh, goes and lives 20 years in uh, Harem, and he is now on his way back home. He's got four wives, 12 sons, a daughter, and uh, 11 sons and a daughter. I'm sorry, Benjamin's not yet born. Uh, So he still has four wives, 11 sons, one daughter. He's on his way back into the land of promise. And uh, verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. So there's a person named Shechem, and the city is also named Shechem, named after this favorite son, the prince of Hamor, for 100 pieces of money. 
Then he erected there an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. He also evidently built or dug a well, which is named after him here in this same region. Shechem, the town, is the scene for the rape of Dinah in chapter 34. Shechem, the son, is the perpetrator of that rape. And uh, all of the events there in chapter 34 we dealt with in our Life of Jacob series. Um, chapter 48 and verse 22, we have another reference here. At the end of the book of Genesis, as Jacob is blessing his sons. And he's going to bless Joseph. In fact, he gives Joseph double portion because he promotes both of Joseph's sons to full tribal status. All right. Are we familiar with that? He promotes Manasseh and Ephraim both to make them equal sons with their uncles. And so effectively, Joseph gets a double portion because both Manasseh and Ephraim will have equal inheritance with the other brothers of, uh, of Joseph. Okay, I'm seeing confused looks. Oh, I'm out of. We have Jacob. You have 12 sons. All right, now Reuben's the firstborn, but he's going to lose out on the right of firstborn. Uh, Levi, Simeon. I'm sorry, other way around. Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. They're going to lose out because of the Shechem incident. Judah gets promoted to firstborn, and he's given the firstborn right. In fact, the tribe of Judah is the line of Christ, and all the leadership that goes into the tribe of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Here's the ruling tribe. But then you've got your other sons, all right? You've got Dan, Issachar, Naphtali, Zebulun, uh, Gad, Asher, Benjamin. And this tribe of, let me put Benjamin last, now this tribe of Joseph, all right? And what Israel does as he dies is that he's going to take these two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he promotes them, as it were. They're grandsons, but what he does is he, he exalts them from the uh, role of grandsons. He exalts them to the position of sons. In other words, it's as if he lifts them up and he gives Manasseh the same inheritance that Gad would get, for example, or Naphtali would get. Manasseh and Ephraim are given an equal share of the inheritance. Of course, Judah gets a double portion as the, as the heir, Levi, Simeon, Reuben. So when he divides the inheritance, the land grant, and also the, the finances, the wealth, um, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. He divides it into 14 portions. Manasseh and Ephraim each getting an equal amount along with all of their uncles. Of course, Judah receiving two portions. That's what's going on here. Now, in the process of this, that there is land in the region of Canaan. Verse 22, or Israel says to Joseph in verse 21, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring uh, you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So there was land that he purchased. There was also land that he conquered. See, some of it unwillingly. He didn't approve of what Levi and Simeon did in massacring Shechem, but when the deed was done, he benefited by the land that was therefore seized. 
All right, finally, Joshua 24, 32. I'll have to close with this. Joshua 24, 32 and Acts 7, 16. Both references to this territory. In Joshua 24, they're going to bring the bones of Joseph up. After the exodus, after the wilderness wanderings, after the conquest, after all this time had gone by, they bring the Joseph mummy. Maybe he'd been embalmed and mummified like an Egyptian, placed on a sarcophagus. He was an Egyptian prince after all. And uh, they brought his, the, the Joseph mummy up from Egypt and they buried it here in this land. They buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So there's the territory. And the last reference to this is in the book of Acts, chapter 7 and verse 16. Stephen is... Uh, giving a walk through as his uh, funeral address. <laughs> He's about to be stoned to death. And in teaching Bible class and giving the walk through, Stephen mentions in Acts 7:16. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Anyway, that's the territory that we're dealing with. We will come back to this one week from today. We will deal with the Lord's tiredness. We'll deal with this woman, who she was, the well that she's coming to, and uh, her social outcast type of circumstance. And uh, we'll deal with more of those things next week. Lord willing, rapture pending, of course. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study. We do thank you for the privilege we have to study the life of Christ and to learn from his examples. And Father, I pray that we likewise would be sensitive to your divine guidance through observing the circumstances and details you place us in. And also, Father, uh, that you would cause us to be sensitive to angelic conflict, to have our eyes open. Teach us how to be shrewd as serpents, harmless as doves. Teach us when to flee. Teach us when to stand. And Father, we just thank you that we have such things to learn from. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.